Hi, I'm Jonathan Edwards, and I want to welcome you to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My goal in this podcast is to teach the truth of the Word of God and apply it to our lives that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed. As you can tell by the title of today's episode, I want to address a topic that I think is somewhat controversial within Christianity, uh, definitely controversial within society, and that is, namely, that God, who is the Almighty, the Creator, designed headship and submission. What do you mean God designed that? Well, that's a patriarchal reading of the Bible. I read that recently as I was uh, doing some research material for my marriage class. To read headship and submission in the Bible is just a patriarchal understanding of the text of the Word of God, and you're filtering everything through a man's perspective, and that's just not how it is. All right, that's fine. But if you're going to say that, then you need to redefine all language. You need to redefine all meaning of words, because the meaning of the text of Scripture— The words of the text of Scripture are plain, and those words have definitions that have been locked into place. And the real problem is not the words or the definition of the words. It's the perversion of God's original intention by sin. Yeah, the real problem is not that God designed headship and submission. The real problem is that we're all sinners living under the curse of sin, living in a sin-cursed world, if we're believers, we've been given a new heart, we've been given a new bo- uh, a new mind, uh, we have a new inner man, the old man is totally gone, we have a new man, but we still live in a body that is under and susceptible to the curse of sin, a body that enjoys the pleasures of sin. And so even in a renew- with a renewed mind, even with a right attitude, the ability to... Uh, act in a way that is pleasing to God. We still sin. So we shouldn't throw out God's original intention, God's original design, because of sin. Because sin perverts it, because sin makes it into something that it's not, and and sin causes it to be less than what God really intended it to be. No, what we really need to do is rebuke the sin We need to look at ourselves and say, how am I sinning? How am I contributing to the perversion of God's original design? How am I sinning by not fulfilling what God intended me to do or created me to do? So as a refresher, as a reminder, if you didn't happen to listen to my previous episode, um, I spent some time in that episode defining what the two different perspectives are that are used often to look at male-female relationships. And so perspective number one is called complementarianism, and perspective number two is called egalitarianism. So perspective number one, complementarianism. What does this mean? Complementarianism means that men and women are created equally in the image of God, that they have emotions, intellect, will, the ability to be creative, they um, are made equally in the image of God. 
they both have the same intrinsic value and worth in the eyes of God. They are positionally equal before God. So there is no class structure or hierarchical structure when it comes to the genders, okay? And genders is two, not 20 or however many people in our culture want to think there are today. Now, there's two genders, and God made them to be equal in his eyes because male and female are both made in his image according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. So the complementarian believes that men and women are created equal in the image of God, but that they were designed to fulfill different functions and roles. And that's where this concept or that's where this idea of headship and submission comes in, that men have certain roles and functions to fulfill, and women have different roles and functions to fulfill. This doesn't, again, make one better or worse than the other, but it shows by God's design that men and women need one another, that male and female are necessary to complement each other and to create a whole. Now, the egalitarian perspective is different in this way. The egalitarian believes that men and women are created equally in the image of God, and because of that, okay, so not a contrast, but because they are created equally in the image of God, they can fulfill the exact same role, they can fulfill the exact same function, they can do, men and women can do everything interchangeably. That's the egalitarian perspective. That's the prevailing perspective in our culture. I found this out the other day when I was uh, helping my kids find something to watch on Netflix. You know, they have um, like the little titles that describe the category of cartoon that you're watching. You know, it'll say like uh, dump trucks or learning or something like that. One of them was Girls Take the Lead. And it was all these cartoons about how girls are the hero and the problem solver. And they're the ones who are celebrated. Girls take the lead. There you go. I told you in the last episode that the culture is laying down an indoctrination about male-female relationships. Well, there it is, very subtly, in the Netflix Netflix scroll. Girls take the lead. The egalitarian perspective is not God's perspective. That is not God's original intention. When God said that he made Eve to be a suitable helper for Adam, Eve had to, by very definition, be different than Adam. And not just physiologically so that she could uh, reproduce the offspring, be be part of growing the offspring birthing the offspring, it was more than just a physiological difference. There was a functional difference as well. And that functional difference helps to provide a great whole for the family. The functional differences between men and women will result in greater balance within the family greater unity within the family. Well, how can difference lead to unity? 
I don't know. God said it. I do know. I'm being facetious. God said it. The two shall become one flesh. How, how do two become one? How do two have a unity that is greater than their differences? That's how God designed it to be. And who are we? Mere created beings to question the creator. So that's just a little primer then on what we're getting into here with this discussion. God designed men and women to be functionally different, to fulfill different roles. And part of that includes that men are to be heads in their household. Men are to be leaders within the church. Men are to be leaders within society. And women are not to be heads of their household, leaders within the church, or leaders within society. You could view this as a somewhat of a creation ordinance, and I think that's a minority view. I know that I'm in the minority view on that. However, I think that the foundational principle, if you extrapolate from the family to the church to society, that foundational principle of men being ones who have been granted an authority to lead, and women being commissioned with a task to support and uphold and submit to and follow leadership, that makes everything flow so much smoother. That's God's original design, God's original intent. And again, why don't we have this? Because of sin. Because sin has perverted it. Because God's curse, when God cursed Eve, was to tell her that your desire will be to rule your husband, but he will rule over you. Why? Because men are bigger, men are stronger. Physiologically, we have more power, and we've used our physiological advantage throughout history to basically cultivate and create what feminists today call the patriarchy, all right? This evil system that promotes men and advantages men and disadvantages women and anybody who's not like men. Fair enough. Fair enough. Sin has created the patriarchy. But again, we're not, we're not looking at what sin has created. We're saying, what is God's original intention and how can I put into practice God's original intention in my marriage, in my relationship? These truths ought to be manifest in our homes and then in our churches and in our communities and our society. And I understand that it's going to be a hard road to go to get these principles to be manifested in the society at large. But if you would consider what would happen if every Christian couple who was listening to this message who is honestly looking at the text of Scripture, would say, you know what? I want to practice God's original design of headship and submission. I want to practice this in my home. I want to practice it at church, in my other relationships, my workplace, wherever it might be. I think that would really go a long way towards bringing about a revival or a renewal of obedience to God's word. 
perhaps not in society, perhaps that's uh, too grandiose, but certainly in our churches where we are committed to God's Word and in our homes where we are committed to God's Word, a renewal, a revival of obedience to God's Word will result in a great amount of peace, joy, happiness, and it'll be a great testimony. It'll be salt and light to unbelievers. So, what is God's design? We've already mentioned, I've already mentioned, that it is headship and submission. And this design, this function for the husband and the wife in marriage, reflects the function of the members of the Trinity. You realize that, right? That though all three persons of the Godhead are equal, all three of them share all the attributes and all the characteristics that would make them God. They are equal, yet there is a clear delineation in Scripture that the Father is the head, and the Son submits to the Father, and the Holy Spirit submits both to the Son and to the Father. That's how the Trinity functions, and they don't seem to have any problem. The Godhead doesn't seem to have any problem with recognizing that authorities exist, and just because an authority exists doesn't take away from equality. Think about the importance of the authorities within the Godhead. The Father is the one who came up with the plan of redemption. The Son is the one who's carrying out the plan of redemption, who carried it out with his death on the, pro- on the cross, paid the price that satisfied God's wrath against sin. The Holy Spirit is the one who is actively transforming hearts to become partakers in redemption. Each of them have a different role to fulfill in salvation. Each of them had a different role to fulfill in the plan of redemption, and yet they're equal, they're three in one. And look, that's a 90-second that's a example of how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal and yet function differently. 90-second example. And that's enough, because if, if it's clear that they can do that in 90 seconds, then it's clear that man and woman can do that. If the Godhead is equal and can function with a leader and a follower, then a husband and wife who are equal intrinsically in their value can function with headship and submission, a leader and a follower. Now, this is based on a foundational truth that in equality, there can be a division of responsibility and function. Inequality, there can be a division of responsibility and function, and that doesn't take away from equality. You see, in our culture, we have made equality to be the idol of all idols. Everything must be equal, 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 equal. And if you're equal, then you can do everything that anybody else can do at any time you want to. That's not what true equality is. Equality is a statement of intrinsic value, of intrinsic worth. And the reality is, in our culture, we don't have any 
basis or any spot or any measuring stick to look at equality because we have abandoned all objective realities. So equality is whatever you make it out to be. Whatever you decide that you want to do that somebody else does, you should do that because you can be equal to them. That, that's not equality. That's getting equality confused with functionality. Equality says everybody is intrinsically worth a great amount because they're made in the image of God. The division of responsibility and functionality, though, is different because of different genders, different abilities, capabilities. So let's take an example. Two men begin a company, all right? One of the men excels at research and design, and the other one excels at marketing and sales. Both of these men share a common vision and a common goal for the product that they make, and they're working towards the same goal. Yet, these men have talents in different areas. They're equally co-founders, correct? Of course. Do they share in the profits and losses equally and the successes and fails equally? Sure they do. But do they do one another's jobs? No. You can't take the research and design guy and tell him to go do marketing and sales. That's not his wheelhouse. And vice versa, the marketing and sales guy isn't going to know the engineering and the design and the, the function to, to make the product what it is. The company would fail. It would really fail. It would falter. If you switch those people and say, well, I've just decided today that I want to be the engineer and the other guy decides, well, I want to be the sales guy. You need both of those men working in the talents uh, or working with the talents that they've been given in the areas where they're gifted in order to have a successful company. Yeah, I've already mentioned the equality within the Trinity. John 14, 26, the Father sends the Spirit. In John 16, 7, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. Matthew 26, 39, Jesus stating, not as I will, but as you will. Um, the order of immersions and baptism, there's the Father, then you have the Son, then you have the Holy Spirit. You know, it's plain in Scripture. It's just plain. The normal interpretation is that the Father is the leader of the Trinity. And the Son is the secondary person in the Trinity. And the Spirit is the third. But that doesn't make any of them less God. And I think what Christians are afraid of is that if they agree that God designed headship and submission, all of a sudden women will be less than men. Wives will think of themselves as, I'm now less than my husband. I'm not equal to him. I don't have any standing. I don't have any, any rights. So if we were to restate this in another way, what we're really saying is, I don't want to obey the word of God because I'm afraid I might lose my self-interest. That, that my self-interest would be imposed upon my interests would be imposed upon, and so therefore I don't want to obey the word of God by becoming submissive. Let's take that another way from the man's perspective. You know, I don't really want to follow the word of God 
I don't want to be the head because that means I have to make decisions. I have to be responsible. I enjoy being slothful. I enjoy letting other people make decisions for me. All I want to do is just go to work, come home, pursue my own interests, and then just be at peace. Just let me be. You know, when you follow God's design, it upsets the comfort of our sin habits. God's design upsets the comfort of our sin habits. And so, yes, this is going to be uncomfortable. Yes, changing is going to be uncomfortable. But think about how good living a life of obedience to God will feel. <laughs> Not that we do things based on our feelings. But there is a great sense, there is a great sense of accomplishment. There is a great inner peace. There is a great joy that comes upon the believer when you humbly submit to doing what the Word of God says. Whether you like it or not, whether you completely understand it or not, there is a great sense of joy and peace that comes over the believer. So with that being said, let's begin to define what these concepts look like. And I have to uh, give some credit to Sam Storms and John Piper John MacArthur, and uh, really there's a, an organization called the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood that I have spent uh, a lot of time reading some of their articles. So I can't say that I spent uh, all the hours studying Scripture and coming up with all these definitions on my own. I was certainly aided in that by other godly men, and I'm very appreciative for that. As Isaac Newton once said, you know, if I reach the stars, it's because I stood on the shoulders of giants. And so we recognize that we live in an age, uh, probably a glorious age, where we have access to information, access to study aids that help us uh, be confronted with the Word of God and think about it. It really shortens the learning curve for us. Now, I, I, I'm not saying that I didn't study at all. I, I did spend many hours studying this lesson. But I am certainly indebted to some of these great men of the faith uh, who have you know, really been active in Christian ministry for the last 35, 40 years because of what they have left for us. And really, they were writing in response to the feminist movement in America and the feminist movement that has sought to infiltrate our churches. Let's go ahead then and define what is headship. What is headship? Headship is a responsibility to lead and to exercise authority. It's a God-given responsibility. It is not something that a man can demand because you already have it. All right, so it's, it's not even a right in the way that we consider rights, right? So like if we take, for instance, the Bill of Rights, the right to free speech and freedom of religion, religious expression, the right to own guns, the right to a free trial or a fair trial. Those are rights in that not all societies have those things. Those are not intrinsic values. You're not born with those things. If it were so, many other cultures around the world would recognize them. But many cultures don't recognize them. In fact, that's really what sets America apart. But this, 
this concept of headship. This is something that almost all cultures recognize that men have a responsibility to lead and exercise authority. Again, the curse causes us to pervert this, but think about it. What cultures send all their women out to war? Have armies totally composed of women? No, none of them do. Not saying that being in the military all of a sudden, you know, is the way that we exercise leadership and authority, but it's certainly one of the markers. Men are to be leaders. Men are to exercise authority. Men are to make decisions that benefit not just themselves, but all of society. When you look at the scriptures and you look at the word kephale, which is the Greek word translated head, you can find that it means source or origin. It can mean the literal physical head, or it means one with authority. And this is how it is used in relationship to marriage. Men are ones, men are the ones with authority. And why should this surprise us again? I've already mentioned that the Trinity has an authority structure within it. So why would it be any different that the one human relationship that is as close to the Trinity as you can be, where you have two persons who become one in marriage, why would it surprise us that there is authority within that relationship? Of course, this is not the only place where God has established authorities God has established governing authorities. God has established parents as an authority to their children. God has established uh, masters as the authorities over slaves or employers as authorities over the employee. Authorities are God's way of maintaining order and civility within society. Thus, headship is the authority that God established for marriage and for the family. Now, what does headship do? If headship is an authority established by God and a leadership, how will you practice that? Well, we, we have a great example in Jesus Christ. Our Jesus was a great example of somebody who had authority and he led through biblical means. So that would be the first thing that headship does. Headship leads through biblical means. How did Jesus lead? He led through teaching. He led through spending time with his disciples. He led by being a godly example to them. He led by delegating authority. And famously, He says that he led by serving his disciples. So think about that list, men. Are you teaching your wife, your children? Are you spending time with your wife or your children? Are you the best godly example that you can be? Are you willing to delegate authority if necessary? And are you serving your wife? 
Men, if we want to be godly leaders, if we want to follow God's design for us, we need to put in some effort and work. Look at what Jesus did. He taught. He spent time with. He was a godly example. He gave authority away at the appropriate time and at the appropriate place. And he served. That's not how the world thinks about headship. In that great passage where Jesus talks about his main goal being serving others, he says those who are rulers, those who are leaders of the Gentiles, lord it over the ones that they rule. Husbands, do you think that headship means lording your authority over your wife and over your children? If you do, then you are not practicing biblical headship. You are perverting biblical headship. Let that sink in for a moment. Husbands, we need to lead through biblical means. And that means that headship is also scripturally limited. As husbands, we cannot lead in ways that are contrary to Scripture. So, husband, if you don't know your Bible, if you don't understand what your role, your responsibility is according to the Word of God, then you need to get down and start studying the Word of God. Turn off the television, uh, turn off the radio or whatever it is you do while you listen to work, and start getting your mind filled with the Word of God. You will not know how to lead. And you will be paralyzed as a leader if you don't know the scriptures. Furthermore, your leadership should be completely consistent. Now, this is, a, this is the ideal, right? Your leadership should be completely consistent with the scriptures. Don't lead your family in ways that are contrary to scripture. In other words, don't lead your family to sin. Don't lead your family away from a great local church. I can't tell you how many times we've talked to guys over the years in ministry who want to take a job in a new city, and one of the questions that we ask is, where will you go to church there? Is there a quality church, a Bible-teaching church there in that city? And and it's like you get a blank stare back, and it's like, well, I never even thought about that. Well, wait a minute, you're planning to take a job, uproot your family, leave a good church and go to a new city and you haven't even thought about whether there's a good church there or not? That's, that's irresponsible. If you are going to lead your family, you cannot lead in ways that are contrary to Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean there may not be a good church there, but if you haven't even thought to look at that, you shouldn't be making a decision as to whether to take that job or not. Obviously, sometimes it's out of your control if you want to stay working for the company. But you know what? Why don't you, why don't you put God first, put God's church first, and see how God might provide? So first, headship leads through biblical means. And then headship does not lead in ways that are contrary to Scripture. Right? Thirdly, Headship means that you, husband, have a responsibility to make a decision when agreement cannot be reached between you and your wife. You have a responsibility to make that decision. Now, there are times 
where your decision may be to allow her to decide. I don't think that this is contrary to exercising headship because you may decide that she's more well-versed in that area. And because you trust her and you see her as a fellow heir and you're honoring her as somebody who's created in the image of God and you say, honey, I know we don't agree on this. I think it should be this way, but you say it should be that way. I'm going to, my active leadership is going to be to let you make the decision in this particular situation. Now, wives, don't go crazy with that thinking that that's how it should always happen. But there may be situations where the husband decides to delegate his authority to his wife so that she can make the final decision. The practice of headship. Let me say this. The practice of headship requires gentleness, sensitivity, and understanding. Listen to what Peter writes, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Husbands, don't be a domineering force over your wife. You can't be totally passive, but you can't be a domineering force and expect that to Expect that to be the way that God wants you to interact with her. Here's the instructions. Live with them in an understanding way, as with someone weaker. Be tender towards her. Be sensitive towards her. Try to understand what her frailties are. Her frailties and weaknesses are different than your frailties and weaknesses. And God says it's incumbent upon you to try to understand that and to live with her. Another verse that helps husbands understand this is Colossians 3.19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered towards them. I really like the ESV translation. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And uh, if you look in the dictionary, the word harsh, it means unpleasantly rough or jarring to the senses, cruel or severe. Husbands, if we could record ourselves, which I'm obviously doing right now, but if we could record the way that we talk to our wives and play it back, is that how we would want to be addressed ourselves? Sometimes I think that we are harsh. Perhaps we don't intend to be harsh, but we are harsh. And that is a turnoff for your wife. That, that, uh, That puts her down. It puts her in her place. It doesn't produce a spirit of joy and thoughtfulness. All right, husbands, we need to not be harsh. Don't be embittered towards them. If we're going to practice headship, let us practice it with gentleness, sensitivity, and understanding. Lastly, husbands, when we look at what headship does, headship means that we love and we care for our wives as Christ loved the church and as much as we love and care for ourselves. This is the great advice. It's not even advice. It's a command given by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. In the same way, husbands 
should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does love the, does the church. You know, Christ is the head over the church, and he cherishes and he nurtures the church. Husbands, you are the head over your wife. Are you cherishing and nurturing your wife? And maybe you're saying, no, I'm not. Well, then you need to go and ask your wife, honey, what will it look like for me to nurture and cherish you? Because her definition of what nurturing and cherishing might be is a lot different than what your definition of nurturing and cherishing might be. Husbands, if you're going to love your wife and put her interests first, you need to understand what it looks like to nurture and cherish her. I'll never forget early in my marriage when I talked to my wife about what does it look like to love you? And she said, clean your desk. And I said, well, what does cleaning my desk have anything to do with loving you? She said, I just like things to be neat and tidy. And so when when you clean your desk, uh, it shows me that you care about my interests. Now, as we've had kids, that is extrapolated into a lot of different things. I try to do the best that I can to clean where I can in ways that are helpful to my wife because that's a demonstration of love to her. She appreciates that. And that's a, that's a good example. That's a good application of that we are loving and caring for our wives as Christ loved the church. And as much as we love and care for ourselves, we don't neglect ourselves, whatever we want. We, we take care of it. We do it. Don't neglect your wife. Now, husbands, what else? What can't you do as the head? Headship is not a command to rule over your wife. You don't need to exert an iron fist over her. You shouldn't take steps to ensure that your wife submits to you. She is not your subject as if she was a peasant and you are the king. No, she is a fellow heir. That's what Peter just said. We just got done reading that. She is a fellow heir in the kingdom of God, and you need to treat her with honor and respect. Husbands, our headship should never seek personal exaltation or self-satisfaction. Headship does not seek its own pleasures. Right? Headship does not, we just read in Ephesians chapter 5, that we are to love our wife and to nourish her and to cherish her, not only ourselves. We don't use our headship to try to get what we want or to satisfy ourselves at the expense of other people. Headship, again, is not the power of a superior over an inferior. I think I've already addressed this well enough, but I'll just state it again. Headship is not you are a higher class than your wife or your spouse. Nope. You're equal before God, but you have been given an authority. So use it responsibly. Finally, headship doesn't mean that a man 
must make every single decision in the home. Proverbs 31.11, interesting verse. Let me read this to you. Let me begin in verse 10 to pick up the context. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. Verse 11. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. I don't think that the Proverbs 31 woman would have been able to do all she did if she had a husband who micromanaged her every move. First of all, he wouldn't have time to do that. But secondly, this verse reveals that because the heart of the husband trusted in his wife, he gave her freedom to make decisions and to act, uh, shall I say, independently. Not independent of her appropriate role as a submissive wife, not independent of him as a team, but to act independently of him making every decision for her. So a husband has to know that being the head doesn't mean that you make every decision in the home. Let your wife, if she is a capable woman, and they are capable, all of us would agree that our wives are very, very capable. Let your wife make decisions about how she wants to manage the family. That may look differently than how you manage certain things, but you're not there. That's her space. That's her territory. Entrust her to do what is right. Work with her to help in the character development and the growth of your children. But you don't need to micromanage all the aspects and hours of her day and her time. All right, Headship doesn't mean that you need to make every decision in the home. It means that you need to be a leader, but not that you make every decision. There's a distinction there. Leaders delegate appropriately, knowing that the husband and wife are going in the same direction, knowing that we're working towards the same goal, they delegate appropriately. So husbands, don't think that you need to make every single decision in the home. Trust your wife. God gave her to you to be a helpmate to you. All right, well, I've, I've clearly run out of time to talk about wives today and submission. I will try to touch base on that next week. But, uh, you know, if you have any thoughts on this or comments, shoot me an email. I'd really like to hear it. Um, gracebrotherinchapel at gmail.com. Shoot me an email or leave a comment on the, the Podbeam website, and I'd be happy to address those things. These are important truths, and, and you need to understand these are foundational truths about how God designed men and women. And if you don't get these foundational truths correctly, you will be building a floppy and faulty structure. Really search the Lord in prayer to see if you are doing what he says correctly when it comes to these issues. God bless, and may your marriage glorify Christ.